You are listening to Love Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. You know, I think a lot of people that go into healthcare want to have this concept of helping people. Uh, but I, I really did, you know, I, I felt the idea of, of going to uh, places that were, you know, underserved and, and in need. That's always been an underlying uh, passion, I guess, of mine and interest. And the other confounding variable has a lot to do with, I think, one of the issues that we're struggling with now in terms of how to do research with integrative medicine. And that is in the act of looking at light as energy, you change what you see. This is Dr. Lisa Belayo, and you're listening to Love Me Radio, show number 281, Taking Care of Teeth and Treating Trauma, airing for the first time on Sunday, February 5th, 2017. Maine is becoming known for its highly trained healthcare providers and innovative healers. Today, we speak with Dr. John Ryder, Dean of the University of New England College of Dental Medicine, which will be graduating its first class of dentists in 2017. We also discuss groundbreaking techniques for repatterning the brain and nervous system in cases of trauma and chronic pain with health psychologist and integrative practitioner, Dr. Gregory Nevins. Thank you for joining us. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at Aristel.com. Tickets for Maine Live, a day of insightful talks by the business and creative people shaping the future of our state, are on sale for a limited time for just $85. Join host Dr. Lisa Belisle and 14 mesmerizing speakers for a day that will inspire conversation and connection. This fourth main live is on Thursday, March 30th at USM's Abramson Center, and the special ticket price of $85 is only available until February 24th. Go to mainliveevent.com for more information and to purchase your discounted ticket. Today in the studio, we have Dr. John Ryder, who is Dean of the University of New England College of Dental Medicine. He has served in leadership roles at the college since its opening, including Assistant Dean for Academic Affairs and Executive Associate Dean. Plus, you have a long and esteemed history in um, dental medicine. Yeah, that's right. I don't know about esteemed, but uh, thank you. Well, I think it's pretty interesting what you've been doing. You've uh, made your way from the middle part of our country and really gone around the world, from what I can tell. Yeah, it took me a while to get to Maine, but uh, now that I'm here, I'm I'm extremely happy to be here. And uh, what a what a beautiful place. I completely agree. Tell me about why dentistry. Well. Uh, 
I don't know how far back you want me to go. You know, I was born on a Thursday, and uh, but uh, I I actually used to play in uh, rock and roll bands, and uh, and one of the players in the, one of my bandmates was a dentist, and uh, I got to know him well and and uh, appreciated the lifestyle that he was uh, that he led and uh, and also got to hear a lot about his stories of uh, helping people and going on mission trips and things like that and uh, so I think that uh, that inspired me and uh, but actually going back even further than that when I was a child and going to the dentist I used to get little rubber animals as a reward and I think maybe that was the very first time I was inspired to, to go into dentistry um, I had quite a collection as well. Um, but uh, I think that idea of, you know, I think a lot of people that go into healthcare want to have this concept of helping people. Uh, but I, I really did, you know, I, I felt the idea of, of going to uh, places that were, you know, underserved and, and in need. That's always been an underlying uh, passion, I guess, of mine and interest. And uh, I think that's what drove me, you know, outside of the country as well and into some of the adventures in Southeast Asia and other places and eventually to Maine because Maine is actually not that much different from a lot of the needs in Southeast Asia and other places. Well, tell me about that. Well, uh, I spent time in Cambodia and uh, I was helping uh, with the curriculum development and uh, with the dental schools there and uh, addressing the access to care issues in Cambodia. Cambodia is a very rural area, which is similar to a very rural country, which is actually similar to Maine in, in, in many ways. There's a, a couple of uh, larger metropolitan areas that you might compare, maybe um, Portland and Bangor and you know so on, but the rest of the country is very rural. And um, the problem with distribution of, of healthcare professionals is again very similar. So when I was in Cambodia and working with the dental schools, we were actually looking at the, uh, at the new dental schools that were developing in the United States and what was their mission and how might we borrow some of those ideas uh, and uh, you know, apply them there. And uh, so that's what got me kind of alerted to uh, the new school that was opening in Maine, the University of New England, as well as some of the others. I had known uh, about the, the founding dean and uh, that uh, he had opened another school in California, a dental school. And, but these, the, you know, there's, the dental school curriculum is basically the same as every, any other dental school, but, uh, you know, this was the largest geographical area left in the United States, if you consider Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont, without a dental school. And, uh, and definitely the, the needs in this area were, uh, or are, uh, great. So uh, this idea of building a traditional dental school with a little bit of bent on, uh, you know, adding more public health in the curriculum, um, having the fourth-year students going out into community-based educational sites to start uh, immediately addressing the access to care issues, uh, and uh, and also the benefits of you know being trained in a in a real life environment like that. This was different, and, and it's a, it's somewhat of a departure from a traditional uh, training program or educational program. So I, I liked that idea when I first heard about it being in Southeast Asia, 
and uh, and I bought into that idea, I guess, and, and, it, and it does really work. So we tried to apply some of those things in in Cambodia, some of those concepts which are are being uh, 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 implemented now. And then when the opportunity came up to come to Maine with the and be involved with a school that had these same philosophies, then uh, what a great opportunity! So I only wish that I uh, would have been able to come. 10 or 20 years earlier. Well, all good things take time, right? Right, that's right. I'm thinking about um, dental school and medical school, and I know what the curriculum for medical school is because I've been through it. I don't I don't think that I'm very, fam- well, I know I'm not familiar with a dental school curriculum, and I'm guessing that a lot of people who are listening are also not familiar. Can you explain that? Yeah, I think a medical uh, dental school curriculum is... Uh, arguably the most or one of the most difficult uh, programs to go through. It's uh, it's very similar to a medical school program in, in the first two years where they're, uh, and, o- and often dental schools and medical schools will combine uh, courses and classes for the first two years. Uh, Harvard, for example, the medical students and the dental students attend the same courses and the same classes. And uh, and even where I went to school at Iowa, we we spent uh, a lot of the same courses with the or uh, attended many of the same courses with medical students. Um, but what happens when the medical students go off when they're done with the course and then they, or with the class time and then they go off and study? The dental students have to go into a lab or a, a simulation clinic and start. Uh, cutting plastic teeth and uh, doing uh, procedures, so we're learning um, how to develop those hand skills and uh, that that mind to eye to hand coordination. Uh, at the same time, you're cramming all this biomedical science information and other types of information in your brain. So it's uh, it can be very difficult. Uh, the the average number of credit hours per semester. You know, dental school is about 35 credit hours for one semester versus a typical undergraduate uh, program, which is about 15 or 16. So easily double the time and effort that it takes. Uh, And then beyond that, uh, you know, the first two years, then we start uh, concentrating more in seeing patients and uh, doing these mini residencies, you know, for the last two years. So it's it's not an easy time. It's it can be very stressful for students. Do you do training these mini residencies? Do they do you learn about um, periodontia, or do you learn about other types of dental specialties, or where where does one do these trainings? Yeah, there's uh, again there can be different uh, um, philosophies and methods of training. At Iowa, for example, in the third year we spent uh, 12-week rotations going around to each specialty. So there's oral surgery and perio and and root canals and pediatric care and and so on and so on. And um, so that was an interesting way to learn, where you you would kind of focus and immerse yourself in these different specialties, and it's similar to a medical. Uh, type of a training. Uh, and then in the fourth year, we were, would go into family, what we called family dentistry, which is um, more comprehensive care. In our program at UNE, we think that um, we like to emulate the way you would pract- one would practice after you get out. So we have uh, what we call a group practice model of training. So in the beginning of the second year um, of dental school, 
you're in, you're indoctrinated into these into one of these groups uh, group practices, kind of like Harry Potter, you know, where you pick out the get your you know your sl- Slytherin or whatever. And uh, so is once there, you're is there a hat? Does somebody pick yeah? Out it's of a, a magic hat, hat that we <laughs> we pull the names out of. Well, there's a and selling then, point right there. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, there's a lot of magic in, in dental education. But uh, once you're in this uh, group, uh, the practice group, you're in that group for three years, for the remaining three years, and you, you team treat, the student team treat the same patient base for that, for that three-year period. So the benefits are um, student helping student within the, within the group, but also maintaining this um, comprehensive and continuity of patient care. You get to know your patients very well. They get to know you. And uh, then there's this trade-off, you know, of the, the new ones that come in and the, and the congratulations to the old ones that move out. So we feel that that's a very uh, patient-centered, especially, and also student-centered way of learning and, and uh, ac- in, you know, approaching patient care. So. You now, you started this in 2013. Right. The school did. So you're, you now have a group of fourth-year students who are getting ready to graduate this year, 2017. Right. Tell me what usually happens once one has a dental degree. Do you go right out into practice? Do you do additional training? What's the general um, approach? Well, historically, um, dentists, when they graduate, tend to go straight into practice. Um, it's it's the numbers statistically are are tend to be about the opposite from from medical school where eighty percent of um, physicians graduating would go into <coughs> excuse me specialty programs twenty percent in the primary care and with dentists it tends to be about eighty percent that go into um, directly into primary care and another twenty or twenty five percent that would go into specialties. That number has been increasing a little bit, uh, the specialty numbers um, or in the last few years, but it's, it's stayed relatively steady. You know, dentistry is still very much uh, this cottage industry where you see one dentist in a 800 or 1,000 square foot practice and, you know, in, in a community and, and uh, they become the community dentist. It's, it is changing a little bit with, uh, you know, it's, I think the hand's being forced by um, you know, changing issues in, in medicine and uh, medical care in general. Affordable Care Act definitely has some some uh, um, influence on that. So we are starting to see the rise of corporate dentistry, uh, where a corporation may own several different practices or manage practice manage uh, practices in, in states, a variety of states. Um, but I think we're still looking at single or, or partnerships uh, kind of an industry uh, out there. There are uh, several specialties that dentists can go into, and uh, you know, oral surgery, orthodontics are the, probably the most famous that people know and, and the most popular. Uh, but there's also pediatric uh, dentistry and endodontics, specializing in root canals, periodontics, specializing in uh, the gums and surgeries and things like that, and uh, public health is another area. So, uh, while we don't have specialty training programs in our dental school, we definitely 
uh, train our dental students to be very competent in those areas and prepare them to go out into the world and, and practice those procedures. It seems to me that I've, I've seen different sets of initials behind dentists' names. So mm. even though everybody comes out and they're all called doctor, I've seen DMD, DDS, probably many other alphabet soup type of initials. <laughs> What's the basic difference in what people come out with? Well, the first dental school in the United States was Maryland, and they created a, a degree called the Doctor of Dental Surgery which was the DDS program. Um, Harvard came not too much longer after, and uh, Harvard being Harvard, they created their own program called the, the Doctor of Dental Medicine. And uh, uh, so then that's where the DMD came from. And the, the pro training programs were slightly different in, in the early days, but as time has gone on, it, it's, there's really essentially not that much difference. We can say that the Doctor of Dental Medicine degree, which is the one that we have at UNE, is um, maybe spends more, uh, has more emphasis on on the medical um, philosophy and the, the the medical model as opposed to a, a surgical model or a surgical approach toward care. Uh, but essentially, they're the they're the same thing. And then uh, you'll often see dentists with uh, master's degrees or PhDs. Um, there's uh, the training, specialty training programs are not unlike medicine, again, where you could do a, you do a residency and you could either come out of that program with a, a certificate or a board certification is, is the primary objective. Um, but uh, often uh, those training programs will have uh, a master's incorporated with them or potentially a PhD. So... And then there's fellowships, you know, that, that throw in the mix as well. So it sounds like you could just keep getting educated. Yeah, for a really long time. Oh yeah, yeah. It takes a long time to get to to, to this point, and you can certainly keep on going, um, which is good. You know, I think uh, you know there's there's continuing education that's required, whether you want to continue your education or not, uh, to keep maintain your license in in most states. Um, but I think it's it's good that uh, people continue and stay on top of what the there's just too much happening in medicine too quickly you you have to read the journals and maintain your you, you know this continuing education idea. I know we've heard a lot about the importance of oral health in physical health. We've heard a lot about gum bacteria and heart disease and I've every time I go to the dentist now even though I'm not a I don't chew tobacco they pull my tongue out they look on either side they palpate around they make sure I don't have any oral cancer right um, and it seems like the, the specialties are becoming more and more integrated where it used to be teeth on one side rest of the body on the other side right it seems like there's this growing understanding that they're all connected yeah hallelujah they've discovered that the mouth is connected to the body right so it's uh that that's a that's a great epiphany and revolution i think that's that's happening now and it's i, I don't know why it's i guess you have to go back in history and and try to find out figure out why Dentists have lobbied to stay somewhat separate from medicine, but you know, medical training has very little uh, training in in um, the oral cavity, 
or the, even really the head and neck region. Um, the medical students are typically, and I'm not slamming medical education. I'm just saying, my in my experience, medical education uh, or medical students tend to look past the teeth and at the back of the throat, and then that's where that's where diagnosis starts or and uh, interest starts. Um, but this, the concept of interprofessional education, I think, is very, very important and significant now. And uh, not only is the research showing that the mouth is connected to the body, but uh, you know, other areas, other medical areas, uh, allied uh, specialties are also realizing that from their perspective, you know, back from their perspective, back toward the mouth. Um, even um, uh, programs like uh, occupational therapy or physical therapy are involved with uh, dental students and, or, I mean, d- dental patients and vice versa. You know, um, a, a patient that has Parkinson's disease, for example, and um, uh, has maybe has trouble taking care of their teeth or, um, uh, you know, can work with an or- occupational therapist to devise different kinds of toothbrushes or devices to, to assist them with that. Uh, physical therapists, you know, working with patients with uh, jaw or TMJ issues and and so on. And uh, pharmacy students, we have pharmacy students and pharmacists that interact with the dental students, for example, and medical adher- adherence issues and uh, polypharmacy issues that dental uh, patients will have as well. Uh, social workers, uh, you know, uh, dental patients, sometimes when the there's something again magical about laying the back in the chair, and they start to kind of open up about their uh, personal issues and and issues. But it's it's often a time where you can um, uh, you know diagnose or well, maybe not diagnose, but suspect uh, uh, domestic violence issues or uh, suicidal tendencies and things like that. So uh, the dentist today has to know how to work with. Uh, other healthcare professionals recognize problems and get their patients to uh, the proper areas and uh, proper healthcare professionals. So, I think uh, the idea of interprofessional education is uh, again extremely important. And at UNE, it's you know to give UNE a plug, we have four doctoral programs, six master's programs, and four bachelor's programs all in, in healthcare. And the opportunity for these students to interact is tremendous. So, hasn't dental medicine always been somewhat on the forefront? Because it, it seems as if it's really a team approach. It's the the doctor that I see at the end of the visit. I see him for very short periods of time. Thank goodness, because I have nice teeth thanks to my parents who brought me <laughs> to the dentist all the time when I was younger. But I spent a lot of time with a dental hygienist. Yeah. And there's like no separating it. You you couldn't have one without the other. And it always, at least in my lifetime, it seems like it's always been the case. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And I, I think that uh, dentists do feel uh, approach patient care in a, in a team way, uh, a team effort. Um, and I think that that's, that's going to increase. I wouldn't be surprised if, of course, it, it, I need to finish my sentences. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if we see um, multi-specialty types of, of healthcare practices in the future that would include um, uh, dentists, hygienists, but also some of these, some you know maybe physicians or 
uh, uh, specialty areas in, in dentistry, uh, whatever. Um, you know, in Maine, we have uh, FQHCs, federally qualified health uh, care centers, and uh, especially in the rural areas. And these FQHCs often employ a variety of healthcare professionals, and uh, as well as inviting students in uh, as well. So one of the benefits of sending our students to FQHCs, for example, is they have this opportunity to see what it's like to team treat a, uh, a patient with physicians and nurses and uh, pharmacists and social workers and so on. And uh, I think that they would, uh, most of them certainly would agree that that's a really terrific way of approaching patients and getting the job done. I have to say one of the most tragic things that I see is um, young people who have no teeth. Mm. I mean, and this is sadly something that I see more often than I would like. You know, I have a patient who can't be 30 and she has no teeth at all. And it goes back so far. It seems as though um, we haven't had adequate dental coverage in the state of Maine. When I have patients who come in and they have dental issues, I don't often have anywhere to send them or they're on long waiting lists or if they've got an infection or some painful issue with their teeth, I, I have to prescribe them antibiotics and pain medication because there's, they have to wait for a month to see a dentist. Mm. And to me, this feels like, a, like almost like a public health crime, like there's something right. wrong with the situation. Because once you have no teeth, like how do you eat? How do you eat good, healthy, nutritious food? How is that even possible? Right. And then once you have no teeth, how do you afford to get new teeth? Because those aren't often covered in this population. They don't have any way to get dentures, and they don't have any money. Right. And I think the literature would also show that, uh, you know, the time taken off work or the time out of school due to pain and, and oral health uh, issues is also um, uh, enormous and, uh, you know, often often overlooked, I think, when it comes to uh, public health initiatives. But, uh, you know, the access to care is a complicated problem. And, you know, you can, first we have to, at least our philosophy with putting a dental school here is to uh, build a dental school, recruit from uh, areas that have need, um, recruit students from areas that have need, educate them, and then try to help them go back to those areas. And uh, we know that um, through research that uh, if you come from a small town, you're more likely to go back to a small town or at least uh, practice in similar kinds of areas. So I think that's uh, part of, part of the, um, addressing the access to care issues. However, you can lead a horse to water and you can't always make them drink, right? So the, the other more complex um, issues are uh, often cultural issues. And you can, even in Maine, you can go from one county to another county and have a surprisingly completely different culture. And, uh, you know, 30-year-olds that don't have teeth are sometimes coming from uh, a background or a culture that um, believes that, you know, you, that's just what happens. You lose your teeth when you, when you get to a certain age and it's time for your third set of teeth. You know, when I was a dental student, I'll never forget a family, nice family, um, came in and they brought their 18-year-old son in uh, and their complaint was that it was time for their son to 
have all of his teeth extracted and get a denture because that's what you did when you were 18. You know, you have you, you, you just don't have to worry about your teeth then anymore and you're not going to be in pain or whatever. And then we have cultural issues with some, um, you know, different ethnic groups that, especially working in, in different parts of the world, I've been exposed to, um, you know, people or parents bringing in their uh, children and wanting the canines extracted, for example, because the canines are associated with um, erratic and crazy behavior. And because they, they come in about the same time as adolescence starts, right? So there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of different types of... Philo- and, and we can be appalled or, or laugh or, you know, it's, I mean, but they're true, they're, they're serious issues and, and, and they're real. So we have to do our best to work with, um, you know, cultural beliefs, whether they're here or overseas or wherever, and, uh, and try to do the best we can to solve the problems, solve the issues. But it's going to take time. And I think that's, again, with, with our program, we, we have so much public health in, the, in our curriculum, and, and we've purposely added more public health than, than average, um, that the, our students are going to graduate with a DMD degree, but also a certificate in dental public health leadership. So we want them to graduate and go out into the community with to be able to speak intelligently about uh, public health issues about uh, um, you know being able to uh, comfortably being able to deal with legislatures um, you know address public health policies and and so on because they're going to be the leaders of the of the future so we need to educate them in that way and it'll take time but it it also takes you know well educated and engaged healthcare professionals. You make me feel optimistic for the future. <laughs> and as a primary care doctor for the past two decades, I really appreciate the work that you are doing in this area, and I appreciate the fact that we are that we finally have a dental school in Maine, and that we are working mm-hmm. on these issues. Right. Thank you. I've been speaking with Dr. John Ryder, who is dean of the University of New England College of Dental Medicine. I appreciate all the work that you do, and I appreciate the time that you took out of your busy schedule to come in today. Oh, thank you very much for having me in. It was my pleasure. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by The Front Room, The Corner Room, The Grill Room, and Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room. Chef Harding Lee Smith's restaurants where atmosphere, great service, and palate-pleasing options are available to suit any culinary mood. For more information, go to theroomsportland.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is Portland's largest gallery and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space. The current show schedule includes Nancy Simmons, Elizabeth Hoy, and many more. For complete show details, please visit our website, artcollectormain.com. Last fall, it was my pleasure to work with a group of integrative practitioners who put on a symposium. And one of these practitioners who was involved in the planning of the symposium and is affiliated with the group still is Dr. Gregory Nevins. Dr. Nevins is a health psychologist with long-term experience in integrated and integrative health care. He has spent most of his career embedded within and working conjointly with family practices and some specialty medical practices. Nice to have you in today. Thank you. you have nice a, to be here. You have a very long and um, 
interesting background as a health psychologist, but you're kind of a, you're a health psychologist with like lots of different interests and expertise. Um, yeah, my journey has, uh, I actually started 35 years ago in a integrative medicine uh, practice with three docs and three acupuncturists, massage therapists, polarity therapists, etc., which was an idea way, way before its time. And um, it's really been the impetus for much of my career since in terms of advocacy for integrated and integrative medicine. Uh, integrated meaning um, health psychology or, or emotional issues as part of chronic pain and pro- chronic illness presentation. And um, that experience was great working together, uh, taking the tough cases and analyzing what kinds of intervention systems would be helpful for them from what kind of discipline. And um, so that's, that's really been what I've been advocating for in larger systems, smaller systems of medical um, delivery systems since. Um, and now I find myself back in another integrative um, medicine center with a small group doing what I was doing 35 years ago, which is kind of a nice full circle. You're right in that 35 years ago, the idea of integration really hadn't um, taken off yet. I remember 20 years ago when I graduated from medical school, the idea of integration hadn't taken off yet. We were still calling it alternative and complementary medicine. Right. So what was it that um, caused you to become aware that this was an important um, thing to be involved in? Um, I I would say that I've... um, kind of person that's always thought outside the box. Of course, you know, education as a health psychologist involves certain kinds of sciences and certain kinds of approaches. Um, But as I started to practice, especially in those early years, um, I became very interested not just in kind of being supportive of the medical side in terms of just doing cognitive behavioral work for compliance and that kind of thing. But I started to see there were opportunities to actually affect medical symptoms through work with emotional problems. And uh, started to have some patients, for instance, a patient very early on who um, presented with chronic pain. She rated it a 9 or a 10. And um, she was out of work. She was in the workers' comp system. She was um, struggling with her previous employer. It was really obvious that the strongest emotion involved in her presentation was really intense anger. And this was before I knew any of the kinds of more complex integrative techniques I know now, but just through helping her take that angry energy, and that's how I see emotions as energy, take that angry energy and use it for her own rehabilitation and functioning rather than just sit there on the couch feeling the tension in her muscles. And she was able to uh, uh, recover remarkably and get much more functional and even start talking about returning to work and that kind of thing. So that, that was a seminal 
case that kind of uh, drove me first further research in terms and many of the lectures I gave around the country 20 years ago were about um, not separating mind from body, recognizing that depression, anxiety, anger are part of the presentation of a chronic pain patient and they're inextricably intertwined. And it's only more recently that the neuroscience actually proves that that's the case. And the pain matrix, the new models of etiology of chronic pain and other chronic illnesses uh, now includes um, through brain imaging, we see that the anterior singlet gyrus that holds much of our emotional experience, good and bad, and the insula and the somatosensory cortex where the pain is actually experienced and the discriminatory aspects of pain interpretation occur. Those three areas are stuck in this pain matrix, in this feedback loop and if you break that feedback loop in any stage, whether it's the insula or the anterior singlet gyrus or the somatosensory cortex, you get relief. In my experience, when you break it at the core emotional issue that's stuck in the anterior singlet gyrus, sometimes it's long-term relief. It really gets better and stays better. So it's exciting stuff. I believe that when many people think about health psychology, they do think about the types of things you've described, cognitive behavioral therapy, yeah. for example. Yeah. There's a lot of talking involved, and right. it's all about the words and, and yeah. the thoughts and the sharing of things, which is yeah. all which has its own validity. Yes. But you're actually talking about using techniques that will get kind of get in there without necessarily just spending a lot of time talking about things. That's true. Um, you know, as an integrative medicine person, somebody who is a CAM practitioner and, you know, I've served on the board of the executives, the American Association of Integrative Medicine, have met lots of pioneers and innovators um, in all sorts of different intervention systems, but integrative intervention systems are based on energy. Western intervention systems tend to be based medical intervention systems tend to be based on mass, okay? How, how can we create um, a synthetic molecule to fit the mu receptors to block the pain impulses, okay? How do we uh, take an MRI or CAT scan and find where the lesion is that we can fix, okay? So it's mass-based, and but I think what's really exciting about our time and a lot of the innovations that are going on and a lot of the integration that's going on is that we're now starting to see energy and mass at the same time as both valuable. And this has been a conundrum since the early quantum physics um, explorations where it was confounding to Einstein and Bohm and the others how we could take light, which is one of the interventions, energy intervention systems I use, we could take light and we could see that light was mass in terms of developing experiments which would show protons hitting a screen and we could also see um, you know, light is energy but we couldn't see both at the same time or they couldn't see both at the same time. And the other confounding variable has a lot to do with 
I think one of the issues that we're struggling with now in terms of how to do research with integrative medicine, and that is in the act of looking at light as energy, you change what you see. And what that really enters into is this whole notion of intention when you're working with energy medicine, okay? Whether it's acupuncture, Ayurveda, or whatever. Um, so that I, I'm very optimistic that perhaps we're entering into an age of consciousness where we can see both at the same time, and that that's happening systemically, um, especially through the grassroots movements that's driving integrative medicine in this country. It's the fact that 70% of patients who are going to their medical doctors are already doing something in terms of all alternative medicine. So it behooves the medical side to understand integrative medicine, know what it's good for, what it's not good for, contraindications even, okay? You don't want somebody who has a, um, a pulse that's damp in acupuncture doing hot yoga. That's a problem. And of course, the medical side would also say, and somebody that has a cardiological issue doesn't want to do hot yoga at the same time too. But having a general knowledge of all these intervention systems that are out there that people are using um, and can be very, very valuable. Um, Western medicine is fantastic for um, basically for emergency kinds of situations. Western medicine saved my life at least twice, okay? And, um, but for the more chronic issues, again, we get into a much more complex eti etiology that involves their um, people's emotional backgrounds um, and is in need of integration and um, involves energy. It's energy that gets stuck in certain patterns in neuronal networks in the brain and different approaches can impact those kind of stuck neural networks. And the energy-based ones make sense because when we take a functional MRI or an MEG or CAT scan, what we're seeing, or PET scan, what we're seeing is energy. Um, and energy can change those neuronal networks, I think, quicker than cognition in terms of the cognitive behavioral approaches can certainly help people learn how to manage their stress better, can deal with compliance issues, um, can affect depression and those kinds of things, but they don't get right at those kinds of core emotional issues in um, the anterior singlet gyrus in the background, um, and they don't impact those in, in an energetic kind of way. They can sometimes identify them, but if you've been in psychotherapy a long time, you know patients that have been in psychotherapy for 30, 40 years, they have also the insight in the world, but it's not changing the behavior or the feelings or the medical issue that may have developed out of those long-term patterns of feelings and effects on the autonomic arousal system especially like in fibromyalgia. 
Well, let's talk about fibromyalgia and pain. Yeah. Um, we think of pain as a very physical thing and also fibromyalgia, which is is a syndrome. It's not really a diagnosis, but it's a pain-related um, set of symptoms that a person experiences. But there is a very interesting emotional and psychological um, interaction in those situations. Absolutely. And what, what, again, the pain matrix shows is that um, however the the initial pain develops, um, you can get fibromyalgia patients that are in a car accident. They get myofascial pains in one area, but then it spreads throughout the body, and that's what fibromyalgia is, is myalgia is as opposed to uh, myofascial pain problem. So fibromyalgia and myofascial pain problems are caused by sp- the way to identify fibromyalgia is do you have 11 out of 18 pre- you know, pressure points that are active, okay? So those actual trigger points are spasmings of the inner muscle fiber bundles, okay? They're not involved with the peripheral nervous system that tells the muscles how to move to pick up a cup of coffee and bring it to your mouth. They're involved with the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic, the parasympathetic nervous system. So what we know out of, about those spasmings of those interfusal muscle fiber bundles is that they have excess sympathetic energy in them um, and they have excess norepinephrine in them, which is the stress hormone. Okay, So one of the ways to... Uh, the other issue is that I've never seen a fibromyalgia patient that didn't have a significant part of their life where they were walking on eggshells their autonomic nervous system was on hyper alert all the time. And very often that goes all the way back to childhood. They had very difficult childhoods where they weren't f- free to speak their truths. They, w- they um, weren't heard, they were abused, they were neglected, they were abandoned. And those kinds of issues create emotional trauma, core, neuronal networks in the anterior cingulate gyrus, over their lifespan, more and more situations bring them back to and remind them of that initial core trauma. And those branches and neuronal networks in the anterior cingulate gyrus grow and grow and grow. In chronic pain, the somatosensory cortex, which involves sensation, sensation can also trigger memory, so there is a connection there. And that's where it gets stuck in these chronic pain syndromes. So most of the times when you see chronic pain patients, you'll notice that not only do they have a consistent pain pattern, but they also have a consistent emotional presentation that they come in with, whether that's anger, depression, helplessness, hopelessness, anxiety. um, And that's showing you where the core issue is or what that pain matrix is involved in. Um, but with fibromyalgia, you can't, what, most chronic pain patients, you can't separate the emotional piece from the pain experience piece. They're inextricably intertwined. And again, if you can impact any area of that pain matrix, you'll get relief. If you can take care of the original emotional trauma, that relief tends, in my experience, tends to be long-term. It's not just two to six days. I can use auricular therapy with somebody and get relief 
a majority of the time, but it lasts two to six days. That's not a, a solution. That can help with exacerbations so that they can remain more functional during that period of exacerbation, but it's not taking care of the core problem. And by auricular therapy, you mean using acu acupuncture of the points ear. Of, on the ear? Yeah. When I went to visit your office, you were showing me the work that you do um, with applying energy to acupuncture points, and that's um, one aspect of what you do, but you referred to light therapy. That's mm -hmm. another thing that you do, which I found fascinating. I don't think I've ever been in a situation where somebody was exposing me to a bright light, and it, and I knew that there was going to be a direct impact on my brain waves. Mm -hmm. um, that's really that's a really com complicated system um, that um, one of the people I admire most in terms of an innovator in this whole field of integrating modern technology with kind of ancient wisdom um, is a man named Steve Vasquez and the system that he developed is very complex. It's called uh, emotional tra transformation therapy. Um, but what seems to happen if I can do if I can explain this very very briefly <laughs> um, one of the ways to impact that anterior singlet gyrus I was talking about is to activate different parts of the anterior singlet gyrus okay uh, and one of the ways of doing that is light is energy okay so as as we've evolved as human beings, okay, there were three things that started life. There was water, air, and light. It makes sense that the cells in our body communicate in vibration systems consistent with the different electromagnetic wavelengths associated with color. If you take white light and break it apart, you get all the colors. So um, light goes everywhere in our brains very quickly, and we seem to use the different electromagnetic waveband lengths of light to organize different kinds of information to file it um, so that we can, as a survival of the species kind of mechanism. So when, I don't remember whether I showed you this or not when you came into my office, but um, one of the early things that I can do with people is uh, just use some goggles to allow a very small piece of white light hit their eye at different angles okay and while they're looking straight forward and what happens is that there's another place in the brain called the frontal eye fields the frontal eye fields are responsible for smooth smooth pursuit eye movement where every time you walk into a new environment you scan it we all do okay when I walked into this room I scanned it Okay, um, and what we're doing when we're scanning is we're using those frontal eye fields to go through all of the files in that anterior singlet gyrus and tell us how we should behave. Okay, if some if we're going to walk into some environments that say, "Oh, this feels relaxing. I can. I've been here before. I can let my hair down. I can be myself. There's no problem." Walk into other environments saying, "Something doesn't feel quite right here. I think I'll sit in the back of my head and test it out until I know exactly how I want to react to this environment." And we'll walk into other environment where we'll pick up cues that tell us, uh-uh, I want out of here, okay? So it's kind of a survival of the species mechanism. But 
as you activate, as most of our vision's in dark, and you activate just one angle, one tiny piece of the optic nerve goes back to the occiput and all sorts of places in the brain, but activates only a tiny piece of the frontal eye fields, which are directly connected to that anterior singlet gyrus, lights up a small piece of that anterior singlet gyrus or neuronal network in that anterior singlet gyrus. So as you switch the angle, people feel different emotions at different angles, different autonomic arousals through the insula at different angles, and pain patients can feel their pain levels go up or down dependent upon that insula and um, emotional activation. And I've seen patients who have had patients, I mean, had pain levels, they, they rated a seven to 10 for 10 years, and they're in those goggles. You find a really good, comforting, relaxing, wonderful neuronal network with all sorts of good memories in it, and their pain level goes down to a zero or a two, um, even after years and years and years. That's a quick little introduction to a very complex system and then we get into the color aspects, and sometimes you can um, expose people to the whole spectrum of color, one nanometer at a time, and when you get to certain colors, their pain levels will spike up. And when you get to other colors, especially the cool colors that activate the parasympathetic nervous system, while the hot colors activate the sympathetic nervous system, which is what is the problem in most chronic pain problems, um, their pain level can go down. But if you can identify those specific nanometer waveband links where that pain level goes up, that's probably where you're going to find the emotional trauma that's at the core of the pain matrix, and you can explore it with a variety of techniques, but including this angle that now you use with that specific color as opposed to the uh, white light that you use in the goggles. Um, and there's another component, which is neurofeedback, um, which is strobe, um, because you can entrain brain, brain links through exposing people to different strobe rates. The delta wave um, strobe rates will get at really kind of deep memory that's pretty unconscious, theta wave activity, will bring up a, a lot of memory. Um, alpha is more relaxing. Um, betas, where we are when we're kind of on our A game, we're at work and we're figuring out a problem and our brain's just going at it. So when I'm working with people with cognitive deficits, I'll often work on, on beta waves in terms of indigo, which is usually about con cognition. Um, and then gamma wave activity also accesses important memories in these in this network but also is where you can get peak spiritual experiences peak creative experiences so i often use that kind of at the end of the of the program but well i encourage people to learn more about the work that you're doing and we will give people information on our show notes page as to how to be in touch with you. That'd be great. I've been speaking with Dr. Gregory Nevins, who is a health psychologist with long-term experience in integrated and integrative health care. I really appreciate all of the work that you're doing and I hope that uh, people who are impacted by some of these very significant problems will take the time to learn more about uh, your practice. Great. 
Tickets for Maine Live, a day of insightful talks by the business and creative people shaping the future of our state, are on sale for a limited time for just $85. Join host Dr. Lisa Belisle and 14 mesmerizing speakers for a day that will inspire conversation and connection. This fourth Maine Live is on Thursday, March 30th at USM's Abramson Center, and the special ticket price of $85 is only available until February 24th. Go to MainLiveEvent.com for more information and to purchase your discounted ticket. You've been listening to Love Maine Radio, show number 281, Taking Care of Teeth and Treating Trauma. Our guests have included Dr. John Ryder and Dr. Gregory Nevins. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit LoveMainRadio.com. Love Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Main Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Main Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Taking Care of Teeth and Treating Trauma show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Berlin City Honda, The Rooms by Harding Lee Smith, Maine Magazine, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Paul Koenig. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Lisa Belisle. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com. So good. Just can't seem to put this book